0: Will you bow your heads with me as we begin with prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though our weeks are filled with busyness and work, with worry and anxiety, with bills and all the other stuff that goes with life, that in your infinite wisdom you created a 24-hour period where we could say no to everything else, And enter into your rest. We ask now that as we open up your word, that you would teach us something new. That you would open our eyes to something we haven't seen. And that you would compel us to live in such a way that we would be salt and light. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to begin by asking you a question. I want to begin by asking, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? What kind of difference do you want to make on this world? What do you want to pass on to others? I want to look at a verse in scripture that Ariana read for us. And I think if we're not careful and if we don't slow down enough to read the passage, sometimes we miss what's going on. And so we're going to read in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. This is the end of Joshua's life. Joshua was the leader that came in after Moses. Remember, Moses led the people out of Egypt. Moses led them through the desert. Moses was their leader. Moses was the one that they looked to for everything. He was the kind of leader that we sometimes look back on and say, we want to be that kind of leader, like 99% of the time, because there was a couple of times where Moses did things the wrong way. But the majority of the time, this is the person that even to this day, our Jewish brothers and sisters will look back and point to Moses and say he is he is one of the heroes of our faith and our understanding. And so Moses was this great leader and Joshua was just as good. Joshua was the one who was going to take over. And it was actually Joshua who led the Israelites into the promised land. It was Joshua who led them across the Jordan who led them into what could have been uncertainty, who led them into a place of fear, a place of the unknown. And it, is God, and it is Joshua whom God uses to bring the Israelites that last part of the journey. And so Joshua was a man of faith. Joshua was a man who was faithful and loyal. He was also one of the Bible heroes of the first five books of the Bible. Not the first five books, but like of the Old Testament. Because obviously this comes like a couple verses after. And so here's what's happening. The people, it says, worship the Lord all the days of Joshua. Meaning that while Joshua was their leader, they worshiped the Lord. All the days of, and and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So Joshua dies. But there were still elders who were alive to see what God had did, what God had done. Whoa, sorry about that. (laughs) So there were elders that were alive that witnessed what god did for the israelites as they came out of egypt And they were able to tell that story time and time again of a god who parts the sea A god who shows up in a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire to lead these people through the desert A god who provides manna, which was a bread-like substance from the skies to make sure that the israelites had everything they needed They remembered what God had done and they could point back and they would tell these stories to their children and they would tell the stories to anyone who would listen and say, this is the God who rescued us. This is the God who hears the cry of the oppressed and does something about it. So Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. There were still some of the elders who were around who still worshiped and believed in God the same way as when Joshua was around. And so they buried him with the bounds of his inheritance in Timnaherez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. Doesn't really matter, that part. But this is the next part that matters. Moreover, the whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, meaning they all died. And another generation, this is after the elders. Another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Israel. Somewhere along the line, there was a breakdown in the system. Because if we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, which was part of the Torah, which is what they would have memorized coming out of Egypt, they would have known and they would have told their kids and their children's children about what God had done. But somewhere along the way, there must have been a breakdown in the system of retelling these stories. Because what we find in the book of Judges is that once the elders died, the ones that outlived Joshua, once they died, once they were the ones who witnessed what God had done, the generation that came after them no longer believed the same way. And so it says another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And I want to ask this question for you again. What do you want to leave behind when you are gone? What kind of legacy do you want to leave for your family and your children and the lives of your children's children? And I would argue that perhaps the best legacy that we can leave behind is how wonderful a life can be, how meaningful and fulfilling life can be when you have a relationship with God. Because as we see in Scripture, something broke down along the way. But as a church, we weren't there to witness what God did in Israel or in, in Egypt. We weren't there to see it. We have the stories, but you know what you have that you can pass on? Are all of the times in your life when God did something miraculous, all of the times that you prayed and God answered. All of the times that you prayed for something and God answered a different way, but you knew it was still God who was working for your good. And it is those stories that you have that you must pass on to others. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I don't have any children or, you know, maybe you never had any children. And so you might be saying, well, then that means that I'm off the hook because if I don't have kids, I don't have to share these stories. But I would challenge you. To say that when you leave these stories behind and you pass them on to others, it isn't just the people who are your biological children, but it is to the people within the context of our own church here. Because as you look around, there are kids in this church. If you go into Sabbath school, some of our classrooms are already too full and we're needing to find ways to add new teachers to our, to our volunteer staff because we want to make sure that we are teaching them what it means to have a life-saving relationship with Jesus. The reason this is important is because we're starting a new sermon series this morning that'll go, it's probably going to go like nine weeks because we have VBS and a couple other things in between. But it'll be seven sermons that are titled Growing Together. Now, the conference about a year and a half ago decided that after looking at the statistics about how churches are not necessarily growing, and if you look at the statistics, I think I have this statistic here, adults who identify as Christians, here's in the United States, fell from 78% to 71% between the years of 2007 and 2014. Now, when you think about this, you think to yourself, well, 6% isn't that big a deal, but the reality is, is that churches in the United States just aren't growing. Not only that, if we look around, and I think this isn't necessarily 100% true of our current church context here, but oftentimes we see that younger people are missing from our church. So yes, children are here, because if they were raised anything like I was, it's as long as you're living under my roof, you're going to go to church, whether you like it or not. And We did. And so we're okay with the kids who are minors usually, who are under the age of 18, who know that they have to come to church. But usually what we find is that there is a drop-off in church attendance. Now understand me, church attendance doesn't mean that you have a fulfilling relationship with God. Church attendance doesn't mean that you're a disciple of, of Jesus. Church attendance doesn't mean that your life is all put together. So it could be the people that don't come to church still have a fulfilling relationship with Christ. But as a church, we believe that there is so much goodness and grace that can be found within our church. And so we encourage people to come because church isn't just about what do you get out of this, but how do we grow together? How do we encourage each other? How do we practice generosity and forgiveness and kindness in a church? And the statistics are alarming because it shows that the church is shrinking in North America. Another statistic says that of mainline churches like the Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, and ours could probably be included in this, that that a membership fell from 41 million to 36 million. Five million people isn't something to shrug our shoulders at. And the reality is, I think statistically for young people, that half of the young people in church, when they become of age to make the decisions themselves, will at some point, stop coming to church and so the question remains is what do we want to leave behind how do we want our lives to matter and our conference has spent money has trained people has given money back into the local church and say try whatever you can do whatever you can to see how we can maintain our youth and our young adults to continue to keep coming back to church because it's not just about the numbers for us but it's what the numbers represent Because if we have a church that is full, then we know that as long as we are here together, we will be hearing the gospel on a weekly basis. And then the Holy Spirit will work on each one of your lives as we hear the word spoken. We understand that numbers don't represent success of a ministry, but the numbers represent the people who are actively engaging and developing a deeper relationship with God. And so this sermon series is going to look at what the research shows us of the churches that have done well at not just retaining young people, but also their young people growing. And if you're here, and you think to yourself, "Okay, well, I can skip seven weeks of sermons because I don't need to know that. I promise you, and you'll see here in a moment, we're going to go through some of what the book teaches us. But you know me by now, and you know that if I am up here, you are going to get scripture on a weekly basis, and we're going to un, unfold what scripture teaches us and and even if if you're not 100% on board with this under you know with this growing together and growing young I promise you will get something out of this and I hope that you will be open to the message that we come to on a weekly basis and so as we're going through this series I want you to ask yourself two questions as you're hearing what I'm saying I want you to ask yourself what does this require of me and you'll see what this means in a few moments what does this message require of me and number two how will i pass on what i'm learning the two questions i want you to ask yourself remember as we're going through this series what does this require of me and how will i pass this on to the generation that comes after us you know we've often said in the church That the young people are the future of our church. And I've always cringed at that. And and please don't be offended if you've said that. I feel like I've said it. (laughs) But the young people are not the future of our church. To be a body of believers as scripture calls us. That we are all important. It means that the children are not the future. But the children are also part of the present. And just because they don't give financially. And just because they can't run some of the ministries that we're doing. They are not any less valuable. They are central and integral to the part of the life of the church. And so when we ask that first question, what does this require of me? I want to look at a passage in scripture. It's a passage we know well, but John chapter 15, verse 1 tells us, this is Jesus talking and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that does not bear fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. And now listen to this. He says, Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear much fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So when we ask the question, what does this require of me? And I include myself in this. Is that Jesus' invitation to you is that you would abide in him, remain in him. Our current understanding of language might say something like this. Make sure that the anchor for your soul the thing that gives you peace, the thing that gives you meaning, the things that gives you purpose, make that thing, may it be, Jesus. Because we all know, we search and chase after things in our lives that we think are going to bring us peace. People get into relationships, people get into certain jobs, people buy things, people do things, people get into substances, thinking that we are going to get more life, more joy, more happiness. But as we tell our stories, we would all probably agree that we can chase after all sorts of things, but it's just going to be chasing after the wind. The only true meaning that will come to our lives is a life that is rooted and abiding in the presence of Jesus, not just because we want to go to heaven. So let me give you some real talk. I don't want you to believe in Jesus just because you want to make sure you get to heaven whenever the time comes. That's selfish. I want you to believe in Jesus because Jesus informs us how to be his witnesses, how to be his servants, how to be salt and light in this world so that we can attract other people to him. So hear me when I say this. Jesus gives us the assurance of our salvation. That much is true. But our relationship with Jesus isn't about some time in the future. It is about what we are required and how we are called to live in the world today. Your faith must influence how you live in the world today. We live in a world that is so bitterly divided. So divided. And you know what we're divided about? Go ahead, just... On the tip of all your tongues, starts with the P. Politics. Did you know that politics is so emotionally, like, charged that you could hear the name of someone and of a politician and literally have a physical effect? Okay, that's true. We are so in like. Man, people get so angry. People, like, have relationships, like, family relationships that break up over what? Politics. Over difference of opinion. So, like, if I say this word, if I say this name, there'll be ample opportunity for all of you to be offended, so. I'm an equal opportunity offender. But there are some people in here, and I don't need you nodding your head, okay? Just... There are some people in here when I say the name Hillary Clinton, people will have a visceral reaction towards her. That's true. If I say the name Donald Trump, there are people in this church who have a visceral reaction to her. Is that true? Yeah. So in this church you have people who disagree on politics. Is that true? And what happens is because it has divided our country, it has the danger of dividing our church. You see, the greatest heartbreak in my life is that even as Christians, we have allowed politics to shape how we see everything. So much so that politics also shapes how we read Scripture. It does. And both sides cite the same words to try to say that their side is the right one. So should we vote? Yeah, vote. I don't care. Yeah, vote. I mean, yeah, vote. It's your civic duty. (laughs) It's a privilege. You should vote. But as followers of Jesus who are abiding in the vine, we are to abide in Christ. And it's okay to disagree on politics, like, come on, that's fine. But how we do it must be in a respectful manner. We can call out what's wrong. There is a place to talk about morality in our laws, in our government. That's okay to do. But as followers of Jesus who abide in the vine, whose sole purpose of life and living and meaning and purpose, it must come from Christ and not from anything else. And our children will look and see how we interact with other people. And I don't want us to go down this path where we will allow ourselves to be divided by politics, because at the end of the day, it's whoever has the most money wins most of the time. We want to be countercultural as followers of Christ. We want to live by the beat of a different rhythm. So it's okay to be into the news and politics, and that's okay. But do so in a way that is loving towards others. Because if you can't do that, then it's time to reevaluate why you're getting so angry. But we are called to abide in the vine. We are called to abide in Christ because it is only in Christ that we get true peace, true meaning, true passion, true desire. Everything that is best will come in the context of a relationship with Christ. And our kids will see that. And it's not just enough to say, well, I'm just going to lead by example and let our kids see that. But it's also our responsibility. You see, this is a sermon series on discipleship for those of us who are older. This is a call to discipleship and say, I want to engage my faith by sharing what God has done for me in my life so that the people who come after me will have the same stories. You see, we tell the stories in our testimonies not because someone else is going to experience the same thing. But we tell about the stories of what God has done in our lives because we want to give that imagination to the generations that come after us so that their eyes can begin to be opened and to see, yeah, you know what? God is working in my life. God is still the miracle maker. God is still the one who holds the universe together. And the God who did all that is also intimately connected to my life. When we want to talk about legacy, we want to be connected to the one who is eternal. And everything else we realize isn't as important. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide, remain, have a relationship with me. And I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus is inviting us, he is calling us, he is saying, abide in me. Make me the center of your life. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This isn't, this isn't a judgment text. This is just saying that what you hitch your wagon to, that's such an old term, uh, what you give your life to, it will either lead you to more life or it will lead you to something else. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a text we all like. But what this is saying is when you are committed to Christ, when you are committed to Jesus and everything points towards him, what you ask begins to change. It's not that i'm going to ask for a ferrari and i'm going to get it I mean, I would be happy with a car that I don't have to take to the shop every week and i'd be i'd call it a good day But that's not what this is saying What this is saying is that the more you remain in christ the closer your relationship to god is What you ask for what your request from god It will change because what was once important to you may not be as important anymore because we know that when we are in the presence of God, the things that we gave so much value to, and this is where that politics thing comes up, also money, possessions, material things, all that. What we think is of vital importance, when we are in the presence of Christ, a lot of that we'll realize is not that important. Because what Jesus is asking us to is to not only abide in him, but to pass on these stories to those that come after us says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, that you remain in me and that you become my disciples. As we come to the near the end of this sermon, I hope you would understand that what I'm trying to get to as a spiritual leader of this church, as a shepherd, is that you would give your time, your money, your energy, your emotions to the one who will give back a hundredfold and everything else. We have permission to not value as much because when we are closer to God, he will give us what is truly valuable. So as we come near the end of the sermon and we're talking about growing together and, and the book is called growing young and looking at what churches do that make sure to help keep kids in church. It says there are 10 qualities that your church does not need in order to to grow young. You know, oftentimes we think that our church has to have like it has to be a big congregation, or it has to be in a trendy location, or that it only has to have like twenties and thirty year olds, or that it has to be a popular denomination if, if if one exists. The book says you don't have to have off the charts cool quotient. So you know there's some churches that are like cool. When I was in college, there were some churches I really wanted to go to, never got invited. We don't have to have big modern buildings or big budgets. We don't have to have contemporary worship service. We don't have to water down our teachings. We don't have to be hyper entertaining. What matters is abiding in Christ and sharing that with others. Let me see if I have this quote up there. No, I don't. I want to read this from the book. The truth is that every church needs young people. Their passion enriches the soil around them. The curiosity they bring to scripture and the authenticity they bring to relationships keep your church's teachings fresh and your fellowship fruitful. Other pastors would say that when your church grows young, it actually grows together and it grows better. But as people who are older than them, we have a sacred calling to walk alongside them and mentor them. You see, oftentimes when we think of younger people, if we think of millennials, when we think even of kids, oftentimes we have this negative perception of them. You know, we have this perception that maybe they're lazy or maybe, you know, here's, the, here's one, they're just not the way that we were when we were their age. You see, we have this, these, this picture in our mind of what life was like when we grew up. And we use these pictures as the framework for how we expect other people to act. We do this especially in the church. And what that means is like when, if you look back, if you can think of what you wish your church was like, oftentimes it's a reflection of what you experienced growing up. Like that's normal. And sometimes we place those expectations on the people who are younger than us. And instead of walking alongside younger people, we instead begin to judge them. Well, they don't dress the way they should be dressing. They're not doing the things they should be. They're not as into church ministries as they used to. They're not coming to church anymore. And so we we instead of saying, hey, let me get to know one of them, we instead have this kind of holier-than-thou stance and judge them and try to make them match the pictures of what we think they should be instead of taking the time to get to know them. You see, part of growing together as a church, as adults, it is your and my responsibility to walk alongside the younger generation, not to judge them, not to tell them how they're wrong, not to tell them how they're going you know, the wrong path, unless you have a relationship where you can, but to get to know them to meet them, ask them what they like, ask them what they're into, ask them about sports, ask them about school, ask them anything, ask them to tell you a joke. They probably have jokes. But it's about building relationship with a younger generation. But you see, so oftentimes I think when we look at a younger generation, you know, we think of it as like a kid. Have Have you ever been on an airplane and there's a kid that's crying the whole time? Like, is that pleasant? No, like, it's annoying. Sorry, parents, if your kid does that. Our kid will do that probably, I don't know. When we have kids, come down. No announcements yet. But oftentimes, if there's a kid who's loud, it annoys us. But what happens when we're on an airplane and there's a kid sitting in front of us, but that kid never cries, never yelps, never kicks, you know, the seat behind us or in front of us? What do we normally think or even some people may even tell the parents, well, you have such a good kid. Like we assign moral goodness to a kid for being quiet and not being an inconvenience to us. You see, we often have that view of children and younger generations in our churches. As long as you don't bug me, you're good. But the moment there's a kid that is, uh, that's not behaving the way we think they should, we start judging their parents, we start judging the kid, we start making all these assumptions instead of just entering into relationship with them. If you're a guest and you're here for the first time, Welcome. <laughs> But as I look around this church, most of us are people who come. So I'm just being honest with you. We have a moral and biblical call in our lives to mentor the younger generation into what faith can look like, and sometimes that means we have to work on our own faith. So this man, he writes this story. Well, I'm not going to let you read it. I want to set up the story. So this man, and there's this guy who writes this book called Unconditional Parenting. And he's the one where I got the idea about a kid who's not being loud in an airplane. So he's sitting in an airplane and he hears someone sitting next to him tell the people in front of him, "Well, your son is so good because he wasn't loud. All right. And so here's his reaction to this. He says, overhearing that comment in the plane, I had a little ding moment of my own. I realized that this is what many people in our society seem to want most from our children. Not that they are caring or creative or curious but simply that they are well behaved, a good child from infancy to adolescence, is one who isn't too much trouble to us grown ups. This is sometimes how we view kids in our churches. As long as you don't cause any inconvenience to us, you're a good kid. And this is what our society wants, and this is sometimes what we perpetuate. It says when we fail to examine our own objectives, we're left by default with practices that are intended solely to get kids to do what they're told. This is a book on parenting, by the way. It's called Unconditional Parenting. That means that we're focusing only on what's most convenient for us, not on what the children need. Like I, and I know I may be rubbing some people the wrong way here. I didn't write this book. I'll give you the guy's email. But it's true. We just want our kids to behave. We just want them to do what they're told. We just want them to not inconvenience us, and we want them to not bother us. And so we want to make sure that they behave. But what he would argue, and what this book argues, is that when, we, when he asks parents, and I think I have this, he asks, what do you want from your kids? He says, when I ask parents what their long-term objectives for their kids are, the phrases that come out are that we want them to be happy, Balanced, independent, fulfilled, productive, self-reliant, responsible, functioning, kind, thoughtful, loving, inquisitive, and confident. But he says, but oftentimes we don't walk alongside them to teach them how to be those things because we're so busy trying to get them to behave and do what they're told. And I love this book because it really challenges our pictures and frameworks of what parenting is supposed to be like and instead it gives us a new imagination of what it can be now i'm not a parent so i'm not giving you parenting advice what i am saying is what if we applied this to our younger generations in the church because if we're honest what we want is for our younger generation for them to have a fulfilling and life-giving relationship with christ We want them to have a faith that is able to weather any storms that life throws their way. We want our kids to be so rooted and anchored in Christ that even though things are going the opposite of how they want them to, it doesn't matter because they know that God is still working good in their life. And if we want our kids to live that way in this church, then it requires all of us, including myself, to walk alongside our younger generation and mentor them along the way. Tell them how God has worked in your life so that they can have a framework and an understanding for how God is also working in their life today. Because if we can do that, they will have a relationship with Christ much like we have, and it'll be the best thing in their life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You always call us and raise our expectations to more than what we think we can do. And so it's my prayer now that as we wrestle with what we've heard this morning, that we would not hear it as judgment, but as an invitation. As a way for us to participate in your kingdom. So that all of our experiences would not be in vain, but that they would shape the generations that come after us. That they can have a faith that can move mountains. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.